Hey, well, good evening, Cornerstone. How are we doing Tuesday night? All right. Um, I feel like I need to reset a few things because you've seen me up here now two, three weeks in a row. You're going to see me up here for a couple more weeks. And so let's get to know each other. Um, my name is Greg Tonkinson. I guess I'm considered part-time staff. Uh, so I'm a, I get free coffee out there. So if you want me to buy you a cup of coffee, I can get you some. Um, I, uh, I teach over at Valley Christian High School. I chair the Bible department over there. Um, I've spent, uh, oh, four or five years over there. Prior to that, I was pastoring for a number of years right here around the valley. In fact, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we planted a church right across the street down in, uh, by Tarwater over there. And uh, that was such a, a highlight of my ministry. Um, little did I know that uh, people, if they had a choice to come to a big church as opposed to a little small church, typically they come to the big church. And so uh, that, that lasted for about three years. And then I found my way back into um, team ministry at a number of different churches. And uh, lo and behold, I found myself at Valley. I have some education with ASU and with Phoenix Seminary and over at Talbot School of Theology. And, uh, but my, really, my, my heartbeat and the reason that uh, I think this works well is because I don't trust my own wisdom. And I don't trust uh, mostly what I say even to my kids or to my fiance. Um, I trust what God's word has to say. And so when we can gather in any location and study the word of God together, I feel very comfortable doing that. Uh, and so that's why I enjoy doing these Tuesday nights. I feel like here's a group of people, a crowd, small crowd that has gathered to go to God and say, God, what, what would you have for me from your word? Holy Spirit, how could you teach me tonight in such a way that I'm going to leave uh, not more in, not just more in tune with you, but there are now things that I can actually do in my life to make my life better and to make the lives of those around me better. Um, some of you may have known too, a couple of years ago, I lost my wife to a car accident. We've been married for 13 years and, uh, she was coming home from work, got hit by another car and, uh, and was killed instantly. We had three children at the time and, uh, God had set me on a, a different journey than I was definitely expecting. Uh, last, uh, about five or six months ago, um, I met someone else and, uh, proposed and we are actually getting married in June. And so, uh, very excited about that. Thanks. Um, and, uh, and we're watching what God, so she has two kids and I've got three. And so we're watching what God does with these five kids now and really trying to discover, we were sitting around the other night saying, um, why did we meet? Uh, what, what's our purpose? What's our deal here? What, I mean, we could have grinded it out, I think for another three or four decades and just kind of did the thing and, and single parents. And so why did we meet? Um, and we're nothing special. We're a couple average people and we certainly have a handful now and a brood of kids. And so, you know, and we're trying to discover that, my fiance and I, and, and trying to figure out, God, what's the purpose in this? Um, one of the purposes we strongly believe is that we are both approaching life as I'm a follower of Christ and this person's a follower of Christ. And that's what comes first. And then, God, if you want to do something with two people who are following Christ imperfectly, but as best as they can... So that maybe they could have not only an influence on each other, but an influence on these five little kids. And that God, when we're long and gone, maybe these five little kids could do some things that are extraordinary for you. Maybe that's why you put us together. Maybe by working together at that in training up these five little kids, maybe we could do it better than if we were doing it by ourselves. And so we've wrestled with that because... Getting married, especially for the second time, brings about its set of challenges. I think some of you uh, can, can agree with that and, and certainly can, um, can 
acknowledge that. And so what we do here is very, very important, not just because uh, you're coming and sitting and, and we get to share God's word, but God, guys, it's important to me that when I come here on Tuesdays, and especially what we're looking at tonight, uh, I leave a changed person um, because I, I look at God's word and say, God, what is it that you're going to t- teach me tonight as I live in my circles of influence with my fiance and my five kids primarily, and then my work place in my neighborhood. God, what is it that you want to share with me in these next few moments? And so maybe as we go to go to God's word tonight, maybe that's what you can be asking yourself as well. And maybe over the next few weeks is, God, what is it that you want to share with me tonight? Not so that I have some more information. Goodness, we don't need any more of that. We need changed lives. And as I look at the word of God tonight, and if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Ephesians 5, that's where we're at. I can't find really a passage that's more prevalent uh, that we need today in our society um, because of what I see around me, which is uh, marriages that are strained, if not fractured, if not broken. I see children uh, in in my classrooms that are struggling. Uh, They're struggling trying to figure out, how does this work? How does this Christian life work? I'm 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. How how do I do it right? And rather than listen to uh, some worldly wisdom, I thought it'd be great if we could just turn to God's word. Isn't it amazing as you turn there that, um, have you ever been in a place where God has taught you something and then you show up at another location and, and someone's teaching about the same thing. I was at church on Sunday night. Uh, did anyone come to church this weekend? And so you heard Pastor Lynn talk about uh, dating and this idea that it's complicated. And as he's talking about that, I just couldn't help but think, boy, that's exactly what we're talking about here on Tuesday nights. This is complicated. And if, and if he says that dating's complicated, what word could we use for marriage? If dating is complicated, what is marriage then? And it's like, um, it's like I wrestle with people that, uh, I wrestle emotionally and logically with, with people that, that, that um, have chosen to terminate uh, pregnancies. And, and I wrestle with that because the logical conclusion of a pregnancy is, is a baby. And, and we all know that. And, and so I... I struggle logically, academically with that because I treat dating the same way. The logical conclusion of dating, you only have two options. You're either going to break up with the person or you're going to marry the person. And Pastor Lynn was talking on Sunday about how important it is to marry someone that you've dated well because in marriage, the senses of their both strengths and weaknesses are just going to be heightened. And yet we we don't find too many principles on dating in the Bible. There's no six or seven chapters, but there's a significant amount of passages about marriage. And so as we look at these, no matter where you're at in your relationships tonight, if you're single here, these apply directly to you because the end result of dating is going to be these passages. If you're married here tonight, chances are you're probably going to have kids. If not, you already have kids. They need to hear this. Because when they start dating, the end result for them is either breaking up with that person or marrying that person. And so that's why this becomes critical to me and to you. And as well, if we're married here tonight and we're looking at some of the things that God's word says about husbands and wives and the roles we play, 
we want to leave changed people so that we can impress upon those around us. I believe this. This isn't just theory. Watch how this works in my life. And I'm going to be a better person for it. With all of that said, then look at Ephesians chapter five. And let me just read a bunch of passages all at once so we can just get down to kind of tackling uh, what God would have for us today. Verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives of their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Now again, this is what we've been in the past two weeks. And so we've generated a couple of lists here. Um, these are the, the roles that I think we can confidently say, and I know that's going to be very difficult for some of you to read. Um, if you'd like to come up afterwards and just kind of look at them, all of the roles have verses next to them. But I just want to highlight, I guess, a couple of them. Obviously, there's multiple verses that talk about being subject to your husbands. And as we'd mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that is a voluntary act. That's something that a woman going into her marriage needs to know part of her role, if not one of her primary roles, is to come up under her husband and be subject to him. And note what Paul says in Ephesians 5.24, in everything. Not just the big decisions, not we're moving across the country, not I've, I've changed jobs, but in everything. She's to love her husband, love her children. Uh, marriage is until death. We you, you respect your husband. In 533, fulfill sexual duties out of 1 Corinthians 7. There is an issue of managing your household. The role, one of the roles of the, the wife is to manage her household. To be what the scriptures, the, the Greek word there is good housekeeper. Um... To, to really refrain from nagging all the time. Proverbs talks about that in several places. And finally, we note that one of the roles of the wife is to, to teach her children. We see that several times throughout the book of Proverbs. Ladies, train up your children. Don't pawn that off on both your husband and the church or the youth group. You are a primary vehicle that God wants to use to walk with your children and to teach them. And we'll talk about in just a couple minutes what we're to teach them. Okay, so that's the roles of the wife. And we discussed that a couple weeks ago. As for review, we also have then the roles of the husband. And what we noticed here last week was they're different than the roles of the wife. Yes, we call it a partnership. But there are many partnerships in life where our roles are different. That doesn't mean we can't be partners. And so we discussed last week 
that one of the primary roles for a husband is to love his wife. And we noted that in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, the word there for love, husbands love your wives, is agape. And that there were three or four kinds of love, depending on if you look at all of the Koine Greek. And so there are three primary words for love. And the most strong word would be agape. That's the one used most with Christ toward us or God toward us. For God so agaped the world that he gave his only son. Agape has this powerful meaning of, um, uh, of action. And so this word, Paul chose it very carefully because what he's saying is, as husbands, your role is to actively love your wife. And then we have to ask, of course, because we're guys, we ask, well, how do I do that? Tell me how to do that. And Paul didn't want to make it rocket science. And so he spells it out in Ephesians. In fact, he talks to husbands three times more than he talks to wives in Ephesians 5. And what he says is, let me draw the parallel. The parallel, the way you're to love your wife, guys, is the way I love the church. And the way I love the church is I serve the church. Look at verse 24. But the church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be subject uh, to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gentlemen, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for the church. So I have down here, you're to serve your wife. Uh, We have lead your wife and children. That's clear. Christ is the head of the church. The husband is the head of the family. And the responsibility, gentlemen, is weighty. It's nothing to shake your your nose at. This is a weighty responsibility to lead and lead well. You're to honor your wife according to 1 Peter. You're to provide. Somebody last week, I believe, asked me uh, if there were some other verses that pertain to provide. Again, we have to turn to what does it mean to provide. In Ephesians 5.29, we see that no one ever hated his own flesh. But the person nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church. And the word for nourish, as we talked about last week, was to clothe your body and feed your body and take care of your body. And the parallel, guys, is that we are to do that with our families, especially with our wives. How do you provide for your wife? Uh, We also look then at the word in 529 and how it just, if you go one page, two pages over to 1 Thessalonians, the same word Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 7, where he says, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. The word there, tenderly cares, is the same word Paul uses in nourishing your own body. Do you tenderly care... (laughs) Do you tenderly care for your wife? Okay, and then sexually fulfilling out of Proverbs 5. uh, You're married until death. You are to protect your wife out of Ephesians 5, 27 and 28. And finally, you're to serve her. Now, let me go back to this word love, if, I, if, if you wouldn't mind. Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians. I was in Sunday night service and listening to Lynn, and, uh, and he mentioned 1 Corinthians. Uh, and I, just, I got excited because that's exactly, he mentioned that you see, this, um, you, you see this passage played out in weddings. 
Um, love is patient, love is kind, all that. And people have sung it, people have quoted it. There's, you know, you can make cross stitches out of it. And so this is everywhere. And love here, gang, is the same word for love. In every point in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the word love, there's agape. Now, gentlemen, watch this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Because here's the deal is everyone gets hung up on wives be subject to your own husbands. And the wives are crying out to us saying, I, would, I, wa- I do do that. I want to do that. But so, you got to kind of meet me halfway, guys. And here's one way you can do that, gentlemen. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says in verse 1. He says, if I speak with the tongues of angels and men, or speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but don't have love, it profits me nothing. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying, I could be the most eloquent speaker. I could know the language of all the men and even the angels. And won't that impress my wife? Won't she be glad that I'm so filled with that kind of a knowledge? But he says, if I don't have love, if I don't have agape, if I'm not living out actively, uh, active love, I have nothing. It's as if I were speaking like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Then he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries and I have all knowledge, and even if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, can you imagine a husband and wife getting together and the husband says, watch this, honey, mountain move. (laughs) And it does. See, and guys, we think that impresses people. We think we can pull our wives aside and say, watch me do this and she'll be impressed. The way she's impressed, Paul says, is if you have love. If you don't have this in your marriage, all of these things he's talking about, and I realize that the context of this passage is for anyone. But isn't it ironic that it really is the same word that Paul uses in the way we're to love our wives? He says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I deliver my body to be burned, if I, in other words, if I act like a martyr, but if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. And when I read that and put it in the context of a marriage, it just screamed volumes to me because as, as guys, as husbands, we love to impress. And Paul is saying, you can do all the impressing you want. Your wife is not going to be impressed, gentlemen, if you do not love her agape kind of love. And so we need to be about that business. In fact, one of the things I do with my students and gentlemen, ladies, you can do this with your husbands. See all the words for love in verses four through seven. Again, that's agape love. Take your husband's name or ladies, if you're dating someone, take your boyfriend's name and put his name in as a substitute for the word love there. See what comes out. Okay, so Marty's sitting here. So let's try Marty. Marty's the executive pastor here at Cornerstone. Marty is patient. Marty is kind. Marty is not jealous. Marty does not brag and is not arrogant. Marty does not act unbecomingly. Marty does not seek his own. He's not provoked. He does not take into account a wrong suffered. Marty does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but he rejoices with truth. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. 
And so then we have to turn to his wife, Chris, and say, does he match up? How well does he come through on the love test? See, guys, if we're fulfilling our role as biblical husbands, then our wives will gladly be subject to our decisions because they know we're serving her and we have her best interest at heart. So when we say things like, I really do think we need to move across the country, or I really do think we need to take in a foster child, or I really do think I need to downsize because we have way too much, your wife will say, okay, he has my best interest at heart. And so that's an easier pill to swallow. But if all your wife sees is you doing everything but loving her actively, and then you say, so now we need to move across the country, or now we need to bring in a foster kid, or we need to give more to Cornerstone. That may rub her the wrong way. And then you're going to throw your weapon out of you need to submit. And she's going to say you need to love. And now we're in battle royale. Okay. So gentlemen, I'm encouraging you. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. As you would, as Paul says, your very own body. Somebody um, came up to me after the, the talk last week and we were talking about this issue of providing for your wife and remember last week we talked about this issue of you know how much can a wife work and should a wife work and I don't I don't want to revisit that I think we concluded safely that as long as you're fulfilling these issues these roles ladies work away but our conclusion I think last week was that several of us have double income families because our debt to income ratio is way out of whack so you have to work. And then what happens is that these roles get neglected and guys you're stressed and your roles get neglected and then we have problems. Anyway so we, we landed on this issue well well, why does the guy have to work and we, we discussed this issue out of First Corinthians, or, um, Ephesians 5 but then we also looked at First Timothy. First Timothy 5 says if a man does not provide for his own and it's a broader context of not just his wife and children, but his, his nuclear family, including in-laws and widows. If he doesn't provide for his own, let him be accursed. Let him be treated as an unbeliever and called an infidel, really, Paul says. And I was thinking about that. Why is it that the guy has to provide? Um, I think biblically, it's clear we should provide. But here's what one guy came up to me last week and said this, and I thought it was very interesting. He said, um, he unfortunately experienced divorce, and he said, you know what wasn't one of the causes of my divorce? Was that my wife was the primary moneymaker, and when she came home, it was very difficult for her to fulfill her primary role in a role of a wife, which is to submit. Because she put two and two together, which is, I'm the breadwinner. I can do what I want with the money, and now you're telling me to submit, and I'm struggling with that. Now, again, I'm not claiming that that is an absolute truth, but I did find it very interesting that as he was saying that, I was nodding in agreement that that would have to be a struggle. Naturally, it would be a struggle. It would take a, a heroic women, woman to make all of the money in the house and come home and, ha- and try to be subject to her husband. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying that 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 would be very, very unique to find someone that could do that and do that well. When I, um, when I look at Malia, my six-year-old, and she's going to grow up one day, I can guarantee you, gentlemen, that if you show up at my door or your sons or your grandsons show up at my door and want to marry my daughter, and I, we start talking about life goals, and they say, well, my life goal is to sit on the couch and have her work 
and bring in all the money and I'll watch direct TV, you're not getting in the door. And that would just, that would be foolish on my part as her dad, right? Um, when I proposed to Leanne 15 years ago, her, her dad, Larry, we were meeting outside in the parking lot and I was nervous as all get out. And Larry just had basically two questions. Do you love my daughter and will you provide for her? Why would he ask those two questions? Why not? Where are you going to live? What kind of job are you going to have? And, um, you know, how many kids do you want? And do you love my daughter and will you provide for her? I, I hope. Fast forward now, 15 years, I'm calling Jennifer's dad four or five months ago. I'd like to marry your daughter. Okay, two questions. Do you love her? Will you provide for her? I think those are great questions to ask. And and need I say, I think they're biblical questions to ask. Because that is your role, gentlemen. Uh, You know, let's just table the how many people can work in the family i know this you need to be working and and okay let's deal with the exceptions uh you know i I broke my back and i can't get okay i get all that um your intention needs to be to provide for your family let me put it that way okay um this is what i think god is saying are roles of husbands and wives now my one question is this. The only way I see this being fulfilled successfully, and I know we took a lot of time to get to this point. Do you agree that you need to be a believer in Jesus Christ to do this successfully? Is my question. Do these roles, in other words, scream out believer in Jesus? Okay, so I think we got a couple microphones out here. Is it possible, I guess my question is, for these roles to be fulfilled successfully without you being a committed or devoted follower of Jesus Christ? That's my question. Thoughts on that? You know I have some thoughts, but I want to get your, your opinion. We all good? I got one here couple do these need to be fulfilled or will they best be fulfilled i guess i should say by 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 a a follower of jesus christ absolutely you have to be a believer in order to fulfill either one of the roles or both of the roles and so i i got to follow that up i guess with why uh well the the loving wife Um, The standard by which Paul gives is that he's supposed to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And a person that does not follow Christ cannot love as Christ does. Um, For the wives, I don't know, I'm a guy. Uh, (laughs) No, for the the wives, um, she's she's to subject herself or she's to submit to her husband in the same manner that she does to the Lord. So there's, there's a standard and a precedent that the same manner that they treat or the same uh, relationship that they have with Christ is going to flow into the marriage. Okay, fair enough. I'll take that back there. Mike? Um, I guess I can speak a little bit to the wife's side. Um, I'm divorced, and I can say that 
my husband was raised Lutheran and was basically forced through church his entire life, but did not know those roles, did not live those roles as a husband at all. Therefore, as a wife, I had to make a decision about whether to stay sure. or to go okay. and pursue something else, which is what I did. Yeah. Now, I found myself in another relationship with a non-believer, and I'm struggling with, I think he gets how to serve me, but he doesn't get unconditional. That, that'd be hard. There's like check boxes. Yeah. Conditional love's easy Uh, in the sense of, hey, meet me here, I'll meet you here. It's unconditional love that even if you don't meet me here, I still need to meet you here. That's what makes it difficult. The the reason I ask this, guys, is because I've got, I've got, oh, we got one more? Okay, I'm sorry, yeah. Um, I I honestly think that it can be done, but it would be incredibly difficult because all of those things contradict world standards and, and, you know, what... Is common in society. I mean, yeah, it does happen. I'm sure. Right. But it doesn't happen often. And I would agree with that. Oh, one more, and then uh, and then we'll move on. I think that the world now, and even when I was very young, um, doesn't understand the language. Nobody has a clue from the secular word world what yeah. love is all about. Um, now, the provision, um, teaching, faithfulness, they're just words to the secular world. Yeah. And if you don't have training, which is really a study of the words and making them your own, which love is loving Christ. And if you haven't learned that, you cannot possibly model that. And it goes for all of it. I'd agree. Uh, so two things then, um, marry what Lynn talked about on Sunday night with what we're talking about here, folks. And here's what you get. The only way these things happen on both sides of the equation, the only way is what Lynn talked about on Sunday, Sunday morning and Sunday night, which was what you have to be. See, that's a hard sell. If you don't follow your life after the ultimate act of selflessness, which was Christ's death on the cross. If you don't, it says in Ephesians 5, 24, uh, 22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The only way women you're going to have a successful marriage is if you subject yourself to your husband. Okay, that's fine. But how do I subject myself as you do with Jesus? The assumption there is, you know, Jesus and that you are daily subjecting yourself to Christ. Because the Bible is going to tell you to do things as a person that you're not going to want to do. And you need to make a decision. What do I do when I come to those crossroads? And over and over and over again, Christ says, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. Man, woman, child. You've got to do it. So when a woman is in that routine of submitting herself to Christ, then she finds the man of her life and falls in love. When the Bible says, then subject yourself to your husband, she says, no brainer, I've got that. I've been doing that for years. Husbands, you are to love Christ as, uh, love your wife as Christ loved the church. If you don't know Christ, you have, uh, no, yeah, you have no idea how Christ loved the church. But if you are daily walking with him, 
And you are entering into a relationship where he is showing you every day, this is what it's like to serve others. Then you meet the woman of your dreams and you fall in love and you marry her. And then you are to lead her by a servant leadership. You say, no brainer, I've got that. I can do that. I've been watching my savior do that for years now. And Christ says, go, go be merry, go enjoy the youth of your wife and fun. I got this app on my iPad. It's a countdown to our marriage. And I put a little picture of an island because we're getting married in Kauai. And, or we're not getting married in Kauai. We're honeymooning in Kauai. And so I just, I can't wait to get excited about that. I, I live for that. It's, it's, it's what I'm looking forward to. But the only reason is, is because I know I'm marrying someone that regardless of my imperfections. And there are many. She loves Jesus Christ more than she loves me. One of the most attractive things, I got to tell you guys, and, and I warn my students about this. See, my students ask me this because my students come to me and they say, who should I date? And, and here, here's their options. And, and so my students, I don't know about your kids, but my students say this. They say, um, there's the cute Mormon boy that I, I want to date. What do you think, Tonk? Mr. Tonkinson, what do you, what do you think? Uh, there's the cute kid down the street. There's the cute girl down the street. And I, I think she's religious. I don't really know, but she's really super cute. What do you think? And I say, if your destination is this and this, you've got to date a believer. You've got to date someone, not just a believer, not that just says they're a believer, but someone that is acting out their faith and that it's evident not just to you, because now you're infatuated. Now you're in, in lustville. You'll, you'll believe anything they tell you. So I look at the people around them and say, does that girl know Jesus? Does that boy know Jesus? Oh, absolutely. Not the most perfect person, but absolutely they do. Great. Now you're on the right path. This is exactly what Lynn talked about on Sunday. Why in the world do we date people that don't know Jesus or we struggle to know Jesus? And then we think when we say I do, it all changes. It, it just doesn't. And I think we can all testify either from our own marriages or our friends' marriages that have crashed and burned. It just doesn't work. It doesn't. You've got to be selfless in a marriage. And I don't know of another way to be selfless. When I think it was admitted down here, our society is so selfish. And Christ comes along and says the most successful marriage is when you are selfless. So, so I, I think that 2 Corinthians 6, yes, you need to be equally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked. I think you need to be equally yoked in order for this to work. That, that would be my two cents. Um, I think if you're doing it out of your flesh, it'll work for a while. And then you're really going to have to work very, very hard because grace and forgiveness aren't in your vocabulary. Revenge and anger is in your vocabulary. So why does all this matter? I mean, let's just, let's just be honest. What, you know, so what at the end of the day? Uh, you know, so, and, and by the way, this is a process. This isn't like, okay, you're, you know, Please don't beat each other up on the way home, but this is a process. But this is the process. This is the end result. These are the goals. But, but again, so what? What does it matter? Here's why it matters. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Ephesians 6, verse 1. Here's why it matters. 
Ephesians 6 verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. See, guys, the reason this matters is because most of us who get married, most, not all, but most, will have children. And the Bible comes along to the children and says, and says this to the children. The Bible says, hey, kids, you've got roles, too. You want to know what your roles are biblically as a kid? You're to obey mom and dad, not just obey them. But Colossians 3.20 says, in all things. Isn't one of the most frustrating things when you have to say your kid's name seven times? It's time to go. Caden, it's time to go. It's time to go, Caden. Caden, it's time to go. It's a... How frustrating is that? And we're, gonna, we're doing it times five. Some of you have done it more than that. It, 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 is, it just blows our minds. And so we read Ephesians 6, 1 and we say, you need to obey me. They also need to honor their father and mother according to Deuteronomy 5, 6, uh, 5, 16. You need to honor your mom and dad. That's in the Ten Commandments. There's Ten Commandments that we champion. One of them is spoken to kids to honor mom and dad. And you have every right as a parent to say that to your child. Because it's not you saying it. It's God. And then Proverbs comes along and says this. Kids, listen to your parents. So my question tonight, I guess, guys, is, um, well, twofold. One, um, what are your kids listening to? Listen to mom and dad what? Listen to them argue? Listen to them fight? Listen to them get angry at each other? Listen to them um, complain about each other in public? What are your kids listening to? And this is again why I think that believer marrying a believer has the best shot at fulfilling these biblical roles. Because one of your primary responsibilities as a parent is to train your kids. Teach your children. Moms, teach your children. In fact, take your Bibles. Let's go real quickly. Um, Go to the book of Proverbs. Right in the middle of your Bibles, book of Proverbs. We're going to spend just a couple minutes here in the Old Testament, so hang out. Let's hang out in Proverbs. Look at Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Solomon is calling the children of Israel together saying, listen to your father's instruction, children. Heed or do not forsake your mother's teaching. It will be good for you. In fact, the promise found in the Ten Commandments, honor your mother and father. Why? Why should kids do that? Paul said it's the first promise with a blessing. What's the blessing? Do you know what the blessing is out of Deuteronomy if you honor your mom and dad? Generally speaking, the Bible says if you honor your parents, if you obey mom and dad, you will have a more healthy and prosperous life. Your days will be longer. 
And I think there's some wisdom to that. So children are to obey mom and dad in all things. They're to honor their mother and father and listen to their parents. And we hang on to that, guys, and we say, please, God, would you instill that in my child? And so can I just come alongside of us tonight and just kind of give us a couple of, couple of thoughts on that? Because, because our question, my question is, what, what, what about the times when they don't do it? What are my options? I'm trying to do this, really. I'm trying. You're trying. We're, we're trying to do this. And then sometimes our kids here get the best of us, right? We'd love for them to obey. But how do you do that? How do you get the seven-year-old, eight-year-old, five-year-old, three-year-old? How do you do that? How do you get them to obey? Seventeen-year-old. A couple of things then. Number one, don't, let's not try to control what we can't. How about that? How about we don't try to control what we can't? And let's just breathe easy. Let's just take a deep breath tonight and say, I am releasing my child to you, God. Uh, where do I find that? Look at, look at the book of Ezekiel. Odd place to find parenting techniques. The book of Ezekiel. Uh, go over to um, the Old Testament. Go to uh, uh, Proverbs and stuff. Go to Isaiah. Then go over a couple books, three or four books over. You'll find Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18. Don't control, don't try to control what you can't. And I think I take that principle out of Ezekiel 18. Listen to what, uh, uh, starting in verse 1. Let's just start in verse 1 of Ezekiel 18. Right here in the middle of Ezekiel, God says this, then the word of the Lord came to me saying this, came to Ezekiel saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying the fathers eat sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Do you, does anyone, anyone care to take a guess? What does that proverb mean? The kids of Israel, the children of Israel were saying this proverb. The fathers eat sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Anybody take a guess as to, as to what, what is Ezekiel saying there? Yeah, right here. Okay, so the answer is, is whatever happens to the parents happens to the children. Close, pretty close. Anyone kind of want to refine that just a little bit? Yeah, right here. Okay, closer. The parents' choices affect the children. Okay, the parents' choices are exasperating the children. According to who? The children. Stop saying this proverb. The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. The fathers and moms are eating lemons and the kids are puckering. Is the proverb here. See, I'm suffering because of my mom and dad is what the kids were saying. And God comes to Ezekiel and says, tell them to stop saying that. I'm sick of it. Look at verse 4 of Ezekiel 18, or verse 3. As I live, says the Lord. Now, how, how angry do you have to get God for him to say in verse 3, As I live, says the Lord, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Right? We say that to our kids all the time. I don't want to ever hear you say that again. 
God is saying that to the nation of Israel. I don't ever want to hear you use that proverb again. Why? Because it's not true. Stop blaming your parents for your mistakes is what God is saying. If you're screwing up, it's because you're screwing up. Don't blame mom and dad. I'm sick of it is what God is saying here. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. And the soul who sins will die. Now he goes through, gives a couple different examples. Watch this. Verse five. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her period, or if a man does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, but gives bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing, if he does not lend out money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between men. I mean, this guy's setting up like the perfect guy here. He says, if he does all those things, if he walks in my statutes, verse nine, and my ordinances, so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord. So God is just saying, okay, let me just give you a case study here. And the case study is, here's a righteous guy. Now watch this, look at verse 10. See, and this guy, this has to give you relief. The first seven words or so of, of Ezekiel 18.10 has to give you relief. Then he may have a violent son. How many of us as parents watch our kids do some knucklehead things? And we think, God, what, what, what is going on? I mean, seriously, God, what, what did my child just do there? And God is saying, you've got to release control. You've got to fulfill these roles. And you've got to release control to me. Because the righteous guy in verse 10, he's got a wicked son. How did that happen? This guy was perfect. This is the guy you want as a neighbor, you want as a friend, you want as a coworker, as a boss. He does everything right and he has a violent son. How in the world did that happen? He has a violent son who sheds blood, who doesn't do any of the things to, that he should do a brother, though he himself did not do any of these things. That is, he even eats at the mountain shrines. This kid defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He does not restore a pledge, but he lifts up his eyes to the idols and commits abomination. He lends money on interest and takes increase. Will he live? Verse 13, he will not live. He has committed all of these abominations. He will surely be put to death. Semicolon. His blood will be on his own head. Quite a while ago, folks, after I, I studied this and read this, quite a while ago, I offered up my kids to the Lord. And I said, God, I cannot be stressed out every day of my life hoping and praying that my kids turn out righteous. I, I want them to. I would give anything to have five kids that I'm now responsible for turn out to be godly men and women. I'd give anything for that. That is worth the price of my life. And yet I had to read this passage and say, God, there's no guarantee. None. And I need to be okay with that. 
that when I die and my days are numbered, I stand before God alone. When you die, you stand before God alone. When my son dies, he stands before God alone. And when your child dies, they stand before God alone. And somehow this guy did everything textbook and his kid turned out evil. And God said, I've got it. It's not on you. I've got this. Gives another example then. Now the evil guy has a son. Verse 14. Grandson. Now behold, the evil guy has a son. And that son has observed all his father's sins which he committed. And observing them does not do likewise. Can we give an amen to this kid here? (laughs) Can we give an amen to the kid who says, Mom and Dad... I got to tell you something. I don't know much, but I know you are screwing up. And I'm not going to follow in your footsteps. I'm sorry. But I love God enough to not follow down your path. That's what this kid is. Father is a train wreck. And the kid says, I won't do it. He does not eat at the mountain shrines. He doesn't lift up his eyes to the evil or idols or oppress the house of Israel or defile his... He, he goes through all of the situations and says, this kid does not do it. And then he says in verse 17, he, he executes my ordinances, God's ordinances, and walks in God's statutes. This kid will not die for his father's iniquity or sin, but he will surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion and robbed his brother and did not do what was good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes, he's going to live. God makes it crystal clear, folks. You reach a point in your life where you are accountable for your own actions. And we want to set our kids up as as best as they possibly can. Throughout the scriptures, you and I are told to train your children up in the ways of the Lord. The assumption, you know the ways of the Lord. Our kids are, are just sponges. And they will soak it up. And God is giving you and me an awesome responsibility, which is to train our kids up in the ways of the Lord. But he says to the kids... You've got responsibilities too. Obey mom and dad. Honor mom and dad. Listen to mom and dad. And sometimes, just sometimes, I think we give our kids way too much reason to say, why should I listen to that? I don't even know if they know what they're talking about. Um, Kendra Dean, I, I think I mentioned this several months ago, but wrote that book, Almost Christian, and Right, so the church is preaching this moralistic therapeutic deism and basically we're just telling people, just be a good person and we're finding out it doesn't work. And she interviewed like a thousand teenagers and she said, why have you abandoned your faith? Why aren't you doing this? And they said, because mom and dad aren't modeling this. It's as simple as that, Kenda. It's as simple as that. Give me a mom, give me a dad who all are imperfect. Our kids will give us grace. They really will. But they're looking for us to step up. And the kids are saying, I'm not going to do it. If mom and dad who say they love Jesus can't really love Jesus in a way that I see it in their marriage. What's the point? That's what she can't. That's that was her research. Now, again, is the kid still responsible? I think clearly if Ezekiel says he is, she is. But guys, we can go a long way to help them in that, right? 
we can go a very long way to help them with that. In fact, Ephesians 6, 4, look at Ephesians 6, 4. And then I've got a comment over here. So Ephesians 6, 4, New Testament. Children, obey your parents. We just talked about that, that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. Look, look at this, look at this, 6, 4. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Again, the assumption Paul is making here, you dads know the Lord. That's the assumption. And might I remind us, he didn't say in this passage anyway, and moms bring them up in the Lord, but rather here's the headship again. He's saying dads lead out on this. Pull your kid aside and instruct them in the ways of the Lord, not just verbally show them in your lifestyle. And when you do that, it will become easier. We need to talk to our kids. comment or, or question or you had a question you, you started to touch on it a little bit but when you talk about honor your mother and father as a child as a child and you may have parents that aren't you know godly or christ-like what is it you know where's the children at and what are they responsible for and it because it doesn't say honor your mother and father if they're christians right <laughs> correct great great clarification Children up to, if I'm 95 years old, I never do anything that someone tells me or asks me to do that is contrary to God's word. I've got some students, their parents don't want them to go to church. Uh, That may be too bold of a statement. They would rather they not. So they come to me and say, what what do you want me to do? What should I do? And I say, go to church. Uh, Where else are you going to hear God's word? Go to church. Uh, But my mom and dad, they're not big fans of it. Well, go to church. Uh, It's the husband that tells the wife, I want you to do something immoral. The wife says, go to, um, go punch sand. I'm not going to do it. So you're right. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, this this is not a, a, uh, an absolute. Uh, You have to obey me in everything I say. True, if it's in consistency with God's word. Yeah, good clarification. I was at Yankee Stadium this past summer and uh, watching my Yankees play and in the new stadium, I was loving it. And, and our row just happened to be the row where we all got along for whatever reason, okay? Strangers getting along. It was a beautiful thing. And we're sharing thoughts and dreams and, and we just met each other kind of thing. We're just laughing, having a good time. And I looked down the row right in front of me, off to my left here, there's a guy and his son, uh, two sons and a daughter. Daughter was about 17. I teach high school kids. I'm just trying to track this. And inning one comes and goes, top of the first inning, bottom of the first inning. And the dad's watching the game. The two sons are watching the game. And the daughter's sitting next to the dad. So it's the dad, daughter, two sons. The dad and daughter, okay, sitting right next to her. She's about 17. He's, you know, whatever, 50-something. And they watch the first inning, top half of the inning. They don't say a word to each other. Okay. Change of the innings, bottom half of the inning, not one. I'm not talking about like, you know, what they kind of like, you know, nice hit. Nothing. Inning number two, nothing. Do you, have you ever been to a D-backs game? Can you imagine sitting next to someone and not saying one thing to that person? Inning three, nothing. What do you think the girl started to do? What do you think she pulled out? Pulls out her cell phone. And from innings four, five, six, and seven, not one word exchanged between the, these two people. 
And they looked a lot. I had to go with dad, dad or daughter, dad. I, I, there's no other excuse here. Okay. Not one word exchanged between and she spent the majority of the time from innings four through eight on the cell phone texting. I pulled the strangers I just met, a couple of college girls, I pulled them into the conversation and I said, I know we've just met and stuff, but you've got to look at what I'm looking at here. I mean, it was crazy. Who does that? A night out watching the, the New York Yankees play baseball. Does it get any better? You're surrounded by fellow New Yorkers. I grew up in New York, and so I, I, I have a stake there, and I'm invested in there. And, and we're watching this game. We're enjoying it. The Yankees are winning, and I'm, I can't get off of this. Dad and daughter, not one word, and I would say for two hours and 45 minutes. What? Boy, I hope not, because he's going to jail. I mean, she was like 15, 16 years old. So, yeah, he said maybe it's his wife. I, you know, I don't, I don't think so. Even worse, I, mean, I don't know, I, you know. Finally, ninth inning. Because I thought, I said to these girls that were sitting next to me, I said, like, we should get a pool going to see when he's going to talk first. Like, you know, let's just kind of, you know. Almost to the urge where I wanted to put, just grab both of them and say, would you just say something to each other? One thing. Ninth inning. Finally, the ninth inning, middle of the ninth inning, he leans over and says something. It lasted all of three seconds. She nodded. He went back to watching the game. Game was over. The family got up and left. A three and a half hour ball game. He said three seconds worth of words to her. And guys, we wonder why our kids are not obeying us and listening to us. You gotta, we got to talk to our kids. I'm trying, albeit imperfect, to, try, to talk to my kids. And, and, and here's what I found. is when I talk to my kids, guess what they end up doing back to me? When I least expect it, they start talking back to me. It's the weirdest thing. I was driving home the other day from something. Caden, my 12-year-old, says, Hey, Dad, really, seriously, what do you think the purpose of life is? what unprovoked unsolicited had a beautiful conversation and Caden 12 years old like some of you and some of your kids he's been to hell and back his mom died when he was 10 and now he's had to wrestle through all of that now his dad's getting remarried when he's 12 I mean he's got a lot on his plate and if we haven't built a conversation avenue between the two of us prior to to all this happening I don't know where we'd be right now Again, two very imperfect people, but I love the fact that we can talk to each other because God tells me, Greg, you got to train that kid up. And he's got to listen to you. So what happens then? Okay, that's what I can't control then is my kid's on his own. She's on her own. But what about those times when they're just ruly and disobedient? Okay, in about three minutes, here we go. Here's what I think Proverbs has to tell us. Just turn real quickly. Proverbs chapter 13. Let's close there. How about that? I'm sorry, 22. Proverbs chapter 22. Now let's go to 13. Sorry. Proverbs chapter 13. Right in the middle of your Bibles. Proverbs 13. Okay, look at verse 24. Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares his, he who spares his rod hates his son, 
but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Okay, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. I think, and it is an awkward place to end our time tonight, but I think that there is an avenue, an option for a loving parent to exercise physical discipline on their kids, i.e. e.g. spanking. And the reason I think that isn't because I have a bent towards spanking. It's because I think the Bible gives me that option. And here's what I'll conclude because there's four passages in, the, in Proverbs that speak of using the rod. I, can, I have them up here if you want them after, after our lesson. But I'll, I'll close with this. It doesn't work with all your kids, right? You know that and I know that. It's not the only option. Please and don't ever use it out of anger. Pro, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, instruct your kids in the ways of the Lord and don't provoke them to anger. Ephesians 4. Don't let the sin go down, uh, the sun go down on your angry, on your anger. Be angry and do not sin. So you can never do it out of anger. In fact, Proverbs 13 says, he who loves him disciplines him diligently. You need to love your child if you're going to use that as an option. Um, Bailey, my eight-year-old, it doesn't work with him. We have stare downs and we have spank downs. Where he says, basically, go, you can, you could go for it. And I found with him, if the, if, the, uh, if the objective is to correct, is to discipline, it doesn't work with him. And you may find that similar. So it's not the only avenue. I found with Bailey, taking away things he, p- he prizes is what works for him. He had a $5 tooth fairy money. And then he disobeyed me. Guess what went? The tooth fairy money. You would have thought I pulled out all of his teeth right there. That kid was crying for for an hour. Far more effective. And I was able to get my point across. So what you can control is this. As we close, teach your children the ways of the Lord. You can control that. Meaning, do you know the Lord? And you can control then how you exercise discipline to your children. Okay? All right, uh, next week we'll pick it up with uh, slaves and masters. And then we're going to talk about the devil a little bit. So hopefully you can join us. Let me close this in prayer. We'll get you guys out of here. Father, my hope, my prayer, my, my uh, desire is that we look to your word for our instructions in life. And this is just relevant because most of us either have been married, will be married, are going to get married. Um, we have kids. We have grandkids. We have relatives that have kids and so this is very very relevant to us and father it would be a tragedy if we left here with just a bunch of knowledge so convict us holy spirit where we need to be convicted and to that end we will give you the glory when our lives are changed and those who love us notice it we will give you all the praise bring us back next week to enjoy some more of your word thank you for this church thank you for the ministry it's doing here in the valley in jesus precious name amen Thanks, we'll see you next week.